I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You remind me of the babe. What babe? The babe with the power. What power? The power of voodoo. Who do? You do. Do what? Remind me of the babe. I saw my babe. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman, joined by Owen Hughes, Matt Lamborn, and Andrew Brooker. Hello. As we take a look at the last week or so of film, including a review of Quentin Tarantino's newest effort, The Hateful Eight, and the news involving Golden Globe winners and the sad passing of David Bowie. But we'll start with the quiz, where I'm winning 2-1. It's me in the quiz chair with Owen facing off against Matt Lamborn and Andrew Brooker. I am doing a Tarantino-themed quiz. It's five Ooh. five questions. Whoever gets the most right is the winner, obviously. I'm going to start off with the first question. That's how these things work. And in <laughs> Reservoir Dogs, Quentin Tarantino made an appearance as a character. What was the name of his character? Couldn't even finish the question. Brooke is in there with the right answer. Uh, yeah, I knew that one too, so jobs are good. This one might be a little bit more difficult. Quentin Tarantino appeared as himself as a cameo in one of the Muppets movies. Which Muppets movie was it? <laughs> no way. The Muppets? No. I have no idea. No, the Muppets Most Wanted? No. Christmas Carol? No. Brooke, <laughs> team, team Brooker and Lamborn, you can have one more guess. Uh, Muppets in Space? No, it was actually uh, <laughs> the Muppets Wizard of Oz, which among the... Of course! Yes. That fake yes. Muppets movie. The Muppets Wizard of Oz. Yes, it was a television film. It starred among the Muppets, Ashanti and Queen Latifah. I'll okay. that immediately. <laughs> there you go. Wow. Yes, life doesn't get any better, does it? Nope. It's top fun. of the tree there. Um... He has won two Academy Awards for Best Original Screenplay. One was for Pulp Fiction. The other was for which film? Django. It is, Owen. Yeah. One all with two questions left. No pressure. Samuel Samuel L. Jackson has collaborated uh, with Mr. Tarantino the most, featuring in six of his films. What was the first one that he appeared in? Pulp Pulp Fiction. It is Pulp Fiction. I'm not. I'm not sure who got that one. Well, if you give us a point each, then the final question's the decider, isn't it? You don't have to go to oh, a tiebreaker. Oh, I see what you did there. That is. That's okay because I wasn't <laughs> going to back down either. He uh, Tarantino was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for directing an episode of which 
CSI. It is CSI. That's Matt yeah, Lamborn. Yeah. Oh, he has won shit. the quiz. Nice work, Matt. For, uh, for it's a great episode as well. Won the quiz for me. Owen, I'm going to make you watch something. And it might have been it might have yes. been a Tarantino themed quiz. So you're going to have to watch oh, the Muppets Wizard of Oz. <laughs> oh my god! I haven't even seen the I Muppets movie. I don't know where movie. you're going to find it, you can, but you'll find it somewhere. Oh man, that's just can't wait cruel. for next week. I look forward to the review of that yeah. one. Yes. Um, on to the news now, and as mentioned in the introduction, actor and most commonly, most popularly known as singer, performing artist David Bowie passed away from cancer at the age of sixty-nine. Yeah, David Bowie as in Zoe, not Bowie as in Zowie. Is it Bowie or Bowie? Uh, is Bowie. this the tribute we're going to pay to him on how to pronounce his surname? Yeah, well, this is it. This is definitively how you're supposed to pronounce his name because he called his son Zoe, and it's Zoe Bowie. Zoe Bowie. Wow. Ziggy, Star- Ziggy Stardust yeah. has died. <laughs> Ziggy's dead. The, the thin white yeah. duke is yes. is gone. Um, as insensitively as I could possibly put yeah. that. Sorry, I do. <laughs> that wasn't meant to come out so matter-of-factly. Yeah, it is a shame. Um, and then partly because, like you said, he was sixty-nine, and which is kind of kind of young these days. And the fact that nobody really knew no, he was ill. I like. I, well, I like that he died. I like the fact that he he kept it secret and he managed to keep it secret. He managed to keep his illness away from the mm. general public. So he wasn't hounded throughout the. He, made, he released an album recently, didn't he? Two days ago, yeah. Three, yeah. three days ago, yeah. On, on his yeah. birthday. And that track, Lazarus, is some dark shit as well. Is that the one about him? That, yeah, it's from really him. grim. Yeah. Especially in, in hindsight now. But uh, yeah, what a guy. Very sad times indeed. You know, there's a great speech by Billy Bragg. He wrote, he wrote a piece about how, at the time, you know, people in the playground used to call him a bender. And that was just the language of the playground. And that's just how people referred to him. And it was kind of like a secret thing that you were a fan of Bowie's mm. music because it was, you know, people got ridiculed for it. And then he found out that actually all the girls really liked Bowie. And that's how Billy Bragg got in with a load of girls when he was at school. And getting it's just in, like, getting yeah, in cause with her. That's a term I've not heard for a while. <laughs> oh, you got in with her, didn't you? But you know what I mean? I mean, it's just like, yeah, it, it meant a lot to lots of different people. And of course... In the eighties was Labyrinth, and that's that's sort of uh, the people who grew yeah. up with that, like James, who was a big fan of his, and he went to J- uh, James covered Bowie Fest for us. It was the first festival that we actually covered for Fail Critics as sort of members of the press, where we didn't have to pay. And yeah, I've put together uh, James's coverage from Bowie Fest, and it's on the post credits of this episode if people wanted to listen to that and hear us talk. Well, hear James. He's much more knowledgeable about Bowie and Bowie's films than, than well, perhaps yeah, I mean, we are. James, James to... is a huge James Diamond who started this podcast James and isn't Bo- our friend anymore, doesn't talk to us anymore, unless, unless, <laughs> when one, unless one of his idols dies. But anyway, yeah, James is, can speak far more knowledgeably about, about the man, so he has said a few words for us. Yesterday morning at 6.30am I noticed a post on the official David Bowie Facebook site almost meekly saying that David had lost an 18 month battle with cancer. I immediately googled the story and found nothing anywhere else online. It was obviously a hoax right? I mean there's no way that David Bowie is actually mortal is there? Sadly 
the man who has had a bigger influence on me than even my parents uh, had actually done the unthinkable. I drove to work listening to his latest album, Black Star, with new washed out eyes. Trying not to think about how one can face death head on and leave such an epitaph. I was always crowbarring Bowie uh, references into the Fail Critics podcast when I was a regular. And my favourite memory of my time on the pod was the weekend I spent watching Bowie films at the ICA in London for the inaugural Bowie Fest. A time when I, I also managed to meet one of the, the legendary spiders from Mars, Woody Woodmansey. But I wasn't just indulging him because he was, in my eyes, the greatest musical talent of the 20th and 21st centuries. No, I adored him genuinely as an actor as well and a screen presence in his own right. And in fact, I'd argue he'd be deserving of a failed critic's tribute, even if he'd never picked up a guitar and painted a lightning strike across his always gorgeous face. For many of a certain age, there David Bowie is Jareth, the Goblin King from Labyrinth, the vision of hair, sarcasm and a magnificent codpiece in Jim Henson's beloved fairy tale. And this film sums up a lot of what made him so special in the film world. He had presence. He may not have been the new Al Pacino, but he had charisma and an otherworldliness that means you can't take your eyes off him when he's on screen. Whether playing a hyper-real version of himself in Nick Rogue's The Man Who Fell to Earth or the understated Jack Sellier's in Merry Christmas, Mr Lawrence, everyone who worked with Bowie, including cinematic legends such as Scorsese, Lynch and Nolan said that not only was he a nice guy, but he worked incredibly hard on his craft. He had a sense of humour as well, uh, and that's something that people often forget when thinking of his aloof and alien musical personas. He wasn't afraid to poke fun at anything, including himself, with cameos in Zoolander, SpongeBob SquarePants, and the single funniest moment in the underrated Ricky Gervais sitcom extras. I'll leave you with a quote from someone on Twitter called at Je suis Dean, a few lines that somehow managed to bring a smile to my face yesterday. If you ever feel sad, remember that the Earth is 4.53 billion years old and you somehow managed to exist at the same time as David Bowie. Bye, Dave. In other news, we've had the Golden Globe winners announced and confusing the hell of us at with uh with their categories categorization yeah. of films that would be classed as a musical or comedy in their best musical or comedy the martian one and also joy was nominated <laughs> i don't think it was gonna it certainly wouldn't have won against many of those or any of those that are in i've not seen all of them yet but in the best um best picture category it's certainly it's certainly in its own right able to go up against those they put, but for some reason they've considered it to be. Well, he must consider it to be a comedy because it isn't a musical, and the same with Joy. Yeah, but then you've got like best comedy or musical, The Martian, but best drama, Mad Max Fury Road. What separates those two as one's a comedy or musical and the other one's hmm. a drama? And well, yeah. I mean that doesn't doesn't really make sense to me. But uh, that said, for the best motion picture drama, the winner was The Revenant. Which I'm really looking I'm, forward yeah, to I'm seeing. Yeah, really looking forward uh, to seeing yeah, that. It, it, it looks, really it looks great. Ditto. Brooker, you reviewed it on the website. It's, what have we got to look forward to with the Revenant? It's really, Brooker? it's such a great film to watch. It's just, it's really bleak and horrible, but it's really well made and it really edgy seat the entire time. I really, really loved it. It's still my top <laughs> film of all the Oscar bait so far this year. And there's a bear, and there's a <laughs> bear the attack, isn't there? 
the, that fucking bear attack, I tell you, Jesus Christ, it's the most scary thing I think I've ever seen. Wow. The little bit you see in the trailer is nothing. It is just, it's so horrible and so violent. It's just terrifying. The other thing as well that surprised me a little bit, uh, uh, the best motion picture drama category was, was that maybe the Golden Globes are different to things like the BAFTAs and the Oscars, but Mad Max Fury Road being nominated, not because it was a bad film, because it was great, it was a great action film, but you don't often see action films nominate, you know, action films of that type nominated in the, the big awards. It's probably because mm. it is literally the highest caliber action film we've had in a long time, though, isn't it? It was, it was yeah, it was great, but like, like I said, it's... The, the big awards don't tend to nominate like your blockbuster action films. So it's good that it's um, been nominated. It, hopefully, hopefully it'll break down a few barriers and let those kind of films be. Because there's just as much right to be nominated for awards as any other kind of film. Hasn't Ridley Scott come out today and said he's not doing any more Mad Max films, though? Which is a bit of a shame. George Miller. George, George oh, sorry, Miller, yeah. wasn't it? Mm, yeah, George Miller. <laughs> yeah, Ridley Scott is doing The Martian. That's why I think right. I just got a bit confused. But yeah, yeah he's come out and said he's not going to do any more. Right. Which that is, is a yeah. huge shame. It is, because mm. I don't think you can really hand that off to another director. It won't be the same thing if you give it to somebody else to do. Maybe he's just got a bit James Cameron, and he's like, I can't do any more with this. I've told my Mad Max story. No, I really want to expand on one particular world. It's just going to work on Bay give, films. Give it to Michael Bay. No, don't bloody give it to Michael Bay. <laughs> give every film to Michael Bay. I was really... Have you seen the trailer for his new one? Yeah, I think it looks quite interesting, it, actually. It looks all right, and I really want to watch it, and then I saw that it was from Michael Bay, and I quickly went, no, I don't think I want to watch that anymore. I will say that I quite liked Pain and Gain. I thought it was very Pain funny. Pain and Gain was okay. I mean, they're all dickheads in it, and it's all just, like, how Michael Bay sees men, and it's all a bit icky. But at the same time... It was funny. Anyway, Michael Bay so... wasn't nominated for a Golden Globe, but other people were, Owen. So let's talk about, let's yeah, other talk about them. Yeah, let's make um, one. Best actress in a motion picture drama was Brie Larson in Room. <sighs> I've only just stopped yeah. crying. <laughs> yeah, Brooke and I went to a preview, uh, the Unlimited preview with Cineworld uh, on Monday. And it was it, just an incredibly emotional movie. Uh, for people who don't know, it's based on a book, but um, it's about a mother and her son who the the kid spends the first five years of his life with his mom trapped in a room by a rapist. Think Fritzel, right? That's basically what it alludes to. Um, I hope that's the title for this week's podcast. Think Fritzel. Think. Fritzel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> but but it's just an incredibly like moving story and the performances in it are, are sort of key to that and Brie Larson she's absolutely I mean I said before on the end of year awards I liked Kate Blanchett for Carol I thought she was very good in that um, and we talked about Alicia Vikander for stuff like uh, Ex Machina and, and things like that but this is just um, a level above from Brie uh, Best actor for the drama cast we went to Leonardo DiCaprio for The Revenant which uh, already covered a little bit with um, Brooker but obviously it's not out just yet, so we don't want to kind of go into it too much and spoil the film. I have heard people saying though that he, in they've some people have criticised the Revenant by saying that it's DiCaprio's Oscar bait. He's just doing all he can to win that Oscar. Finally, I, I think we're at that point with DiCaprio though that he's kind of gone beyond Oscars. Mm. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I 
I don't think I've seen a film with DiCaprio that I haven't enjoyed over the last few years, and I think he's excellent in everything he does. And I love when mm-hmm. he makes a film, you get stories about how he's so into it that he's put himself in hospital doing stuff because yeah. he's a fucking nutter. Yeah. But yeah, I I genuinely because I I used to when he got nominated and didn't get anything, I used to get really pissed off at it, especially if it was something that what did win was bollocks. But now mm-hmm. I think I think he'll get nominated for the Oscar, but I don't think it matters if he wins it or not. Is is he Oscar baiting as much as what Will Smith used to? Not with the Revenant, I don't think he is. No, because <laughs> he's actually doing something decent. And the, the the best thing is he beat Eddie Redmayne yeah. in that category. He was nominated for the Danish Girl, unbelievably. Utter, utter bollocks, after him. Uh, Eddie Redmayne did win for best cisgender though. <laughs> <laughs> he won best yeah. cisgender. In a motion yeah. picture drama. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, but we've already spoken about the, the winner of Best Musical or Comedy, which is inexplicably The Martian. Not inexplicably it's a bad film, inexplicably it's not a musical or a comedy. Um, <laughs> same goes for the winner of Best Actress in Musical or Comedy, was Jennifer Lawrence for Joy. Not just was it a bloody boring film, but it, it wasn't a musical or comedy. But, uh, Matt Damon won Best best Actor for... Uh, it's a, I'd, I'd love to get some kind of explanation as how they've been put in those categories. Matt Damon. Big Short was yeah. nominated as well, wasn't it? Yes. But the Big Short is probably because it's by, um, what's his name? Anchorman guy. Uh, not Judd Apatow, the other one. It'll come yeah. to me. Adam McKay. That's him, yeah. Uh, any, yeah. Anything else that he wants to go through with the, um, with the Golden Globes? Uh, one final thing, I guess, is yeah. Stallone for Creed. In a best performance by an actor in a supporting role for any motion picture, which I've not seen Creed um, yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, it was a really good it's, Rocky it's movie. It's nice to see because because obviously he did so well with the original Rocky, and he's been great in other films since. But nothing kind of has got him as much acclaim as Rocky in terms of acting. And he's come back round, you know, in a circle here. And mm-hmm. the latest Rocky film, he's got a supporting supporting actor nod for the Golden Globes. Yeah, yeah, and the, he, he deserves it. He's good as a supporting actor role, and it's it's weird because you can watch him, and he you really do see that he's not Stallone. He's Rocky yeah. in this film. I think he, people underrate Stallone as an actor, and I think they underrate him as a director well, as well. To be honest, but um... that segues us nicely into our last news item, uh, which is a sequel to to Creed, which has um, been titled Creed Two. It's actually Rocky Eight. <laughs> is it Creed yeah. Two yeah. or Rocky Eight? Well, you've got Rocky, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4, Rocky 5, Rocky Balboa, Creed, and then Creed 2. So it's Creed 2, I'd, but I'd Rocky have 8. It. I'd have it. Had some Rocky 8, the 8 in Roman numerals, colon, Creed 2. That's how I'd do it. Or they just get to the gag <laughs> on Spaceballs where they have Rocky 5000. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's been, that's been fast-tracked now to 2017. <clears throat> Off the... Um, the how well-received the... the Creed or Rocky Seven has been received. Yeah, because it's it is a good film, and uh, basically, you know how Star Wars: The Force Awakens was just a rehash of kind of like the themes and beats from the original Star Wars. It doesn't Wars make movies. it a bad just film. Play. You enjoyed it, Alan. Oh yeah, I'm not saying it does. I'm just saying it's just basically Star Wars. Well, it is though. It, it is the series crammed yeah. into one. Creed is the same for Rocky. Creed just takes the original Rocky story, perhaps Rocky One, squashes it down into a different character and expands it again as something else. And it's just the same thing all the way through. And you know what? It's absolutely fine but because it's a good film. But that's what you want from a Rocky film, isn't it? You want some underdog 
beating the uh, overdog and some, oh, some, <laughs> and some and some training montages. Yeah, there's a nice quad bike montage in this, but um, yeah. So the the review of that Brooker's review will hopefully go up by the time people start listening to this podcast. I'm hoping to put it up tomorrow, so it should be there if you want to go and read the full review. On to this week's What We've Been Watching, which will be a very thin section of the podcast, because me and Matt haven't bothered to watch anything. Your life gets in the way. Owen, what have you seen this week? Um, I watched a documentary which came out on Friday, uh, which is called Bolshoi Babylon, which is uh, like a, a kind of fly on the wall look at the Bolshoi Theatre in Moscow, which is famous for its ballets. What happened was in, in 2013, I think, their um, director had acid thrown in his face. Yeah, I remember hearing about carbon. that. Yeah, it was big news. It was big news. But the thing about the Bolshoi Theatre is they never really let anybody in behind the scenes. And what happened was this this particular scandal caused such, like, outcry. And basically, they sort of opened up the, the, the behind the scenes to to a film crew from BBC and from somewhere else that all came together to make this thing. So there's a director attached to Bolshoi Babylon called Nick Reed, who's done a lot with Panorama and uh, he's, he's appeared on a few other sort of BBC things. I think he was on Dispatches as well for Channel 4, I think. So, you know, basically they came in, had a look to see what was going on backstage, how the stars of the theatre um, get on with each other, how the ballerinas are trained, how the the scandal of this guy getting acid thrown in his face rocked them. And for probably the first 40 minutes, it is an absolutely gripping documentary. I have no experience at all with ballet, which I think is I, I do. You've got um, some history with ballet, Steve. What's your well, history with it? I, I ordered <laughs> my brother a canvas print of the original Star Wars posters from you know when they were released in the 70s and 80s. Very cool, retro-looking. What turned up... I wasn't actually at uh, with my brother for Christmas. So Christmas Day, I phoned the family. You know, how, how are your presents? Hope presents were okay. I said to him the same, how was your present? It was okay. And his reply was, um, what's it meant to be? And obviously, obviously, <laughs> I, but a bit more to the story. I ordered the present. It turned up late on Christmas Eve, so I had to ask my mum to wrap it. It came in sort of just, you know, a normal brown paper packaging, and she just wrapped that. She didn't open it to look at it. She just wrapped it like that. So I assumed that the right thing had turned up. So he... he yeah. Um, what's it meant to be? And I said, well, it's pretty obvious what it's meant to be, isn't it? And he just replied, I'll send you a picture. And he ended up being sent a canvas of a ballerina rather than Star Wars. <laughs> um, luckily, the company who who, who sent it uh, incorrectly have now rectified the problem by sending the correct item bit in the largest size and letting me keep the ballerina. So if anyone wants a canvas of a ballerina, uh, email this, this the podcast and we'll sort out getting it sent to you because I don't bloody want the thing. <laughs> I would have thought that's going to be up on your wall in your new flat 
sort of right in front of the front door as people Apparently come in. the faces on everyone when he opened it were priceless. I'm so <laughs> I'm so gutted I was there to miss I would have loved to have been there when they, when he opened that. I'm so I'm devastated <laughs> yeah. I missed it. Would you, do you think if you were there, you would have just played it straight as in, yeah, what? I've just got you a picture of a ballerina. I, I would have like probably ballet. played along with it for you... a bit, I think, if I could have kept a straight face. I don't know if I could have. <laughs> anyway, yeah. back, to, back to, um, to what you're talking about. Yeah, about Bolshoi yeah. Babylon. Yeah. So, what was I saying? So, yeah, basically, it's kind of unprecedented access uh, that these directors were given. They follow the crew, so they, they get to speak to the dancers, they speak to the managers, they speak to the backstage um, hand, everyone who's involved with it, and the guy who had acid thrown in his face. So his name is Sir Guy Philip, and he was uh, a dancer before he was the artistic director of the, um, the, the ballet company. And he's got a lot of interesting things to say about the background politics. So you, you learn about how the guy who was arrested for doing that anyway... Uh, and imprisoned for the attack, he was also a dancer. And so you, you, then you start to think, OK, so was there a bit of jealousy going on? It turns out there's something to do with his girlfriend, which adds an extra layer of intrigue into it, because then you, you start to sort of see all, how all this, this stuff comes together and how improper some of these people behave. And it's 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 just kind of... Yeah, one of the things he talks about is how... When you're a dancer, when he was a dancer with this company, everyone is friends. Other dancers, there's no, like, he never had any problems with any other dancers, although it does go on. So sometimes in the shoes, other dancers who are jealous, like perhaps if someone else has got their part, someone's going on tour with the company and they're being left behind, puts, like, pins in inside the shoes of other dancers. or um, Charming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They tried and sabotage it for them, um, whilst all, at the same time being friendly to your face. And then he, as soon as he became a director, it was completely the opposite. They all hated him. There's just this massive discord between talent and management, which is also, again, I thought this was another interesting part of the documentary. It's learning about something I didn't know about before, which is what a, a, a good documentary should do, is sort of teach you and be entertaining and interesting at the same time. And sort of give you an insight into the political divisions of the people involved was also sort of quite entertaining. But, you know, after 40 minutes, it just felt like they'd covered everything. And it just went on a bit. And it kind of lost its way towards the end. And, yeah, it's just about another guy who comes in to take over the theatre company and he tries to impose his other ideas. So it literally is just like a fly-on-the-wall documentary by that point. But... it. It was okay. Yeah, it's worth watching for the first 40 minutes because that's where all the intrigue is. But it's a very well-made documentary as well. looks great. There's some great interviews with people. They try and keep out of it themselves, the director, so there's no, like, annoying narrator or anyone sticking their schnoz in front of the camera trying to introduce everything unnecessarily, you know, anyone with any ego. It's just there to show you how the, this, this Moscow ballet theatre works. Which is also the best thing about it, I guess. It just feels quite natural. So yeah, came out on Friday. It's in a few cinemas. It'll be around somewhere if you've got a proper Artos cinema near you. So give it a watch if, if it sounds like it's your kind of documentary. Nice okay. one. And Brooker, what have you seen this week? I, in in preparation for yet another fucking god-awful remake coming out in the next few weeks, I watched the original Point Break from 1991. It's been quite a few years since I've watched it. And I forgot just how much fun that film was. 
the remake looks wank. The remake looks like it looks like Triple X without Vin Diesel. It doesn't look like anything to do with what Point Break was about and what made <laughs> Point Break so good. It really doesn't. It it looks like absolute balls. Who's Johnny like, Utah in it? I don't know. It just the looks like generic in, action film. Yeah, the only person I know is Ray Winston, who's got the Gary Busey role. Are you fucking kidding? Me? <laughs> Oh, it's looks, almost as bad as James Nesbitt doing the Ballon d'Or yesterday. No, oh. I, I fucking, I love Ray Winston, but I, even he won't make this film watchable. It looks so fucking terrible. It just looks utter garbage. So, I kind of wanted, because I'm almost certainly I'm going to end up going to watch this fucking 12A rated yeah. extreme sports cop film. <laughs> that's going to be utter garbage. So I thought I'd, I'd watch the original first. And it's, you know, I mean, it's 1991, so it's 20-something years old. And it's still such a good film. You know, there's I can't think of a single frame I take out of it. It's so much fun to watch and just so well made. And I actually forgot how young Keanu Reeves looked in it. And when he starts talking, like, you know, a little bit, well, towards in a little way into the film, when he starts pretending to be a surfer to take the piss, and he just sounds like he slipped back into his Bill and Ted role. Yeah. <laughs> Say he's just doing his Bill and Ted actor, isn't he? My name's Johnny Utah. Who cares? <laughs> Why can't I just act stoned? He just sounds like he's fallen straight off the Bill and Ted set. Ted Theodore Logan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so good and. You know, I haven't seen, I've never watched that many films of uh, Patrick Swayze in, so I kind of forget how good he is in it. And I just, I loved it. Literally, I sat there just like in the afternoon, one afternoon over the weekend, just mesmerised by this awesome cop action film that's better than probably any of the cop films that have come out in the last five years. It is a really good film. Man's waxing his moustache at the beach. Get sand in it. <laughs> Wipes it off of his shoe. Look, shoe. She scuffs the counter. <laughs> I love it. It's so it, good. It's just so. It's so. I for, I did genuinely forget how funny it was. And John C. I forgot John C. McGinley was in it as well. And everything I see John C. McGinley and even when he's not funny, he's funny. And him as as Reeves's boss is he's just hilarious. I loved watching John C. McGinley lose his shirt. Because every time he gets angry in a film, all I can see is his character in Scrubs. Yeah, and he makes so... a good twat in it, doesn't he? He does. But yeah, oh, it's just it's such a it's such a classic film, and yeah, it's the first film I think I saw that Catherine Bigelow made. Because then she went on to do like Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, which I loved both of them. <laughs> but yeah, it's just a, a classic. I think I, picked, I I bought it for like four quid off of iTunes. In oh, the well worth every penny. So, will, you, will you be going to see the remake? Uh, probably. Probably. <laughs> I, I, have, I have a fit, obviously, obviously two very different types of film, but I can see it being kind of akin to that Total Recall remake with um, Colin Farrell. But the thing with Total mm, Recall was it had a proper, it had source material that wasn't the film, so the bits that it changed. A lot of it actually stuck to the the novel slash short story thing a bit better than the Arnie one did, which isn't to forgive it for being a bit of a crap film. Yeah. 
but you know you could forgive it for not being like total recall the movie because actually the original total recall was nothing like the the it was based on mm-hmm. but point breaks just point break there's <laughs> it's a film about a cop in you know going undercover with surfers there's not a single quad in sight you know the thing that's coming out in a couple of weeks just looks awful and completely unnecessary and I take it Anthony Kiedis won't be getting shot in the foot on this one. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the, the all-time great musician cameos in the film. Yeah. Um, him and Matt. Cause, yeah, because he turns up on the beach, doesn't he? Yeah. And I looked at him on the beach, I was like, no. Literally, I was like, I can't be him. And I had to look it up as, I, as they'd done the scene <laughs> in the house. I was like, fucking hell. <laughs> it is Anthony Kiedis. I couldn't believe it. I... Yeah, it's such a great film, and no, probably no Anthony Kiedis in the remake. I have no idea who the guy that, who's playing Utah is. His name's Luke Bracey. Oh, and apparently Luke. He was in G.I. Joe Retaliation. I like the I like the Luke. second G.I. Joe film. The first one I didn't. The second yeah, one was alright for an action film. first one is just appalling. Yeah. first um, one is garbage. The second one is as a, as a kind of brainless action film, actually alright. It's saved by having the rock in it. And Bruce one. Willis. Not Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis is do, just a dick. Do you, but, do you remember uh, my idea, though, for, for the next one, when they get the staff in it, and he's... Because G.I. Joe is made by the same company to make Action Man, so staff could be Action Man and team up with G.I. Joe. And <laughs> that's, that's... They do want to create a universe, yeah. don't they? Weren't they going to try and do that with Transformers? So, but my idea is money in the bank. <laughs> so if you're listening, Hollywood... Send the check my way. Well, that guy who pitched his own Die Hard film has uh, got some money out of it, hasn't he? Did you hear about no. that? He put an advert in the... Um, was it the LA Times or something? Saying what the next Die Hard film should be and someone's bought his idea? No. The next Die Hard film mm-hmm. before White House Down should come out should have been basically White House... White, White House White Down. White Arse Down? White Arse Down, yeah. White House Down. <laughs> my idea for the next Die Hard film was... Bruce Willis in it is probably old enough to have grandkids now. They do their little tours of the White House with the kids. So he's, he's chaperoning just the, the grandkids' school trip to the White House with the teachers. And then some terrorists happen, and he stops them. Because he's... Because he's, he's um, Bruce Willis. Yeah, because he's John McClane. And that's that's Die Hard 6, basically. It's, it sounds more like a prequel to uh, Last Boy Scout. And, no, because, because no, you could have got the policeman from one to be now a security guard at the White House. So he's there as well, and it ties it all in together. Well, you know what you've got to do? Yeah. Take an ad out in the LA Times. Exactly. 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 That might not be exactly what happened. I was just kind of generalising because I couldn't remember yeah. the specifics. But that is pretty much what he did. He pitched the idea in a paper, and then some Hollywood execs bought, bought it off him. Anyway, we I think we've rambled on like idiots for far too long now. Our main review this week and our only new release review of this week's podcast is Quentin Tarantino's new film, The Hateful Eight, which is a Western of sorts, I suppose, isn't it? A Tarantino Western. It is, but people shouldn't really expect it to be anything like Django. No, because it's and not. it's starring Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, 
uh, Welcome Doggies, Tim Roth, Bruce Dern, Channing Tatum, and others. Mm. What did we all make of it? Is, I'm, I'm assuming we're all Tarantino fans. First yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but yes, what do we what do we think of um, the Hateful Eight? Shall I go first because I've got something positive to say about it, and I know I'm probably it's just going to be me and Matt trying to defend this one. Yeah, let's let's go for it, Owen. Okay, I thought it was quite long. I thought it was perhaps kind of smug, even for a Tarantino film. These are all positives. Um, <laughs> but to turn that around, I think it's deserving of the length of time, and I think he has every right to be smug. Because he's a brilliant filmmaker, probably one of the best ever, particularly working today, at least. And Hateful Eight, it's just a really, it's like watching a a play. I think that's quite a common theme that's come out from from reviews. It's like watching a play, which is fine because it just whizzes along. The whole pace of it is, considering most of the, the, the thing is shot inside one cabin, it just it's really quick. It's got a lot of characters, but they're all interesting enough in their own in their own ways. They each bring something slightly different to the film, and I think they're each representative of something else as well. But we can probably come onto that later. But am I am I on my own with that, Matt, or do, do you sort of like it for those uh, reasons? I'm pretty as well, much or in agreement sense? with you. I mean, I had a, a rough idea of what to expect. And I agree with you that it's it could be slightly shorter, but you don't really get short Tarantino films uh, in general. And you know, the whole thing is quite grandiose, isn't it? It's like it's it's this mm. cinematic event that's grander than the average movie because Tarantino doesn't have a, a lot of output compared to most directors. But I really enjoyed it. I was engrossed from from start to finish. I mm-hmm. love getting to know the characters in it. I like it how it makes you sort of think about a character in a certain way, and then partway through the film, your opinions of them sort of get flipped on the head without spoiling anything. And it sort of puts you in a moral dilemma about who to to sort of back in the the plot overall. And one thing that I found myself doing was actually laughing at this much more than I thought I was going to I actually thought mm-hmm. it has some very dark comedic elements to it and it has some bits where you actually find yourself laughing at things and you're not sure whether it's okay to laugh at them like the use of the n-word in it makes me laugh a lot the violence towards yeah. women made me laugh a lot and these are all things that you really shouldn't be enjoying but because it's a Tarantino film, it's just like we just accept anything goes and, and everything's fair game. And that's what I like about his movies. It's like, it's a release from standard conformities in everyday life. And this is a very dark man's world where bad things happen and it's okay to enjoy them to a degree. So I thought overall a little bit shorter would have been ideal, but I for all enjoyed it. And so did my wife, and she's a very hard sell with anything at the cinema. But she loved it. It's it's interesting, actually, the point that you just made about the use of the N-word and the violence and stuff, because that's a common theme through all of his films, isn't it? He he defends his use of, you know, ultra-violence and um, the choice language that's used in them because he's highlighting them mm-hmm. as issues. By putting them into his film, he makes you think about the Yeah, and it's not them. just the fact that they're there, it's how they're used in the dialogue, and that's always the big sell of a Tarantino film. It's... It's like if you were trying to describe it, you wouldn't say it was definitely not an action film, even though there are action elements in it in very fleeting moments. But it's all about 
the dialogue, the delivery of the script, and they all do it so flamboyantly mm-hmm. and interesting. And even there's just little quips. I particularly like Daisy's line. I think she's so funny in it. Absolutely hilarious. Uh, yeah, Jennifer Jason yeah, Leigh's character. She's such great comedy value in it, even though she spends most of the movie getting her face caved in. It's <laughs> part by the characters <laughs> around her. They're really sticking it to her in a big way that um, she remains funny throughout, and that's always good to see. It's, it's like there seems to be a common trend at the moment with really big, powerful female performances, and it's usually about a woman being strong and taking on both. So this woman has to be under the dominance of men, but she still stands up to him to a point, but she's certainly not getting mm-hmm. uh, any type of, of favoritism whatsoever. It's, it's a down and dirty world where the men do what they want to the women and, and she suffers for it along the way that remains great value to watch throughout. It was superb. Yeah, and also her connection to why she's why her character's a criminal is different to the standard sort of uh, fair. Um, her interactions with Kurt Russell's uh, bounty hunter John Ruth is just those two together are just fantastic. Yes. The two, the chemistry between them. There's a lot that's between Kurt Russell and Samuel L. Jackson's character, which is also fantastic. But I think it's mainly Russell and and Jason Lee's sort of on screen mm-hmm. bonding that is great. And even those little things like you just mentioned with the violence towards her, where he just elbows her in the face, and it's like it kind of you shouldn't laugh because. <laughs> As but you do every single time because she's asked for it every single time, which, again, it's not supposed to be an acceptable stance to have. Uh, that, oh, she's asking for it, mm. so she got smacked in the face. It's okay. But it is in this film, in the in the context and the world that Tarantino in the context, written. yeah, it, It's hilarious and exactly. allowable. And yeah, it's just it's good relief from having to deal with the overly PC world that we live in, that we can go back like 150 years or whatever it is in Tarantino's mind to a time where blokes pretty much did whatever the hell they want and the war was so lax that it was almost impossible to prosecute people it, it was a real man's world and the humor sort of built all around that but yeah i found found myself laughing as much as i would do in plenty of comedies put it that way which i didn't think would be the case but uh yeah he, he's definitely good at delivering those sort of uncomfortable giggles mm, mm, definitely it's a very it's a very good script um and it is the performances as well that sort of en- enhance that script. I think, like like I've mentioned, Kurt Russell is just fantastic in this. He's absolutely brilliant. One of his best roles for ages. Samuel L. Jackson, as you kind of expect when he's teamed up with Tarantino, is fantastic too. Uh, Walton Goggins, who would have expected oh, a performance like yeah, that? He was me? superb in it. Tim Roth is, is back. Michael Madsen's back in the Tarantino film. It's, it is a great cast, and I think they all do really well. I thought well. Madsen was slightly wasted. You know, he's not as like as sinister as you've seen him say in Reservoir Dogs or Free Willy, or, <laughs> or even Kill Bill to to a minor degree. But um, yeah, I didn't see enough yeah. from from Joe Gage, but the rest of them I really enjoyed, and they all brought their own specific value to what was going on on screen at all times. And considering they they don't have a lot of real estate to act in. They make it seem very spacious and like a, a much larger environment than it really was. So it's not overly repetitive that you're seeing people in the same room for the vast majority of the film. Yeah, and also because like it's broken up into chapters yeah. in the story. Um, so it it is all in one film, but they use they they break the pace by putting in scenes featured elsewhere. So either in the 
on the road, like it begins on the road as they journey to the um, to the cabin, and then it's like in the stable or in the outhouse, and there's just little things that you're keenly listening to in the dialogue to try and paint the picture for yourself as to what's going on. Because every time they enter the room and um, they sort of survey what's around them, it's a chance for you to reassess what's happening and how these characters are going to going to interact with each other and whose side you should be on if anybody's because you don't know them at all you don't know anyone's true story um all you know is that these characters are meeting on a road on the way to a cabin and it's yeah so it's, i mean that's all the things that i liked about it and um well, well maybe not all the things i'm sure we'll come on to some other stuff as well so brooker steve <laughs> Yeah. Why? Why did you not enjoy it? Was it was long and boring. <laughs> <laughs> pretty pretty I, I, I like Tarantino. I like him a lot. I, I love Django and you know his older films as well. Uh, it, I, I just you know he's he's a great filmmaker. This just wasn't one of them for me. It just went on. It, it was too long for a start, but it, it was very dialogue heavy. Which which mm-hmm. is fine because Tarantino is, is as a rule very good with a dialogue, but for film that's so dialogue heavy and, and is is relying on the, the the dialogue and the the interaction between the characters rather than action or violence. There's action and there's violence like there is in any Tarantino film, but there's not as much in other films. So this film is, is primarily relying on the dialogue. And you'd think any other Tarantino film, you can remember a scene. Of dialogue, you could you know say seeing Glorious Bastards, the bar scene with Fassbender and uh, that mm-hmm. scene, and um, you know Django, you can remember Leonardo DiCaprio, where you had my, you've got my attention. That that scene, and you go back to Pulp mm-hmm. Fiction, where there's um, John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson in the car talking. That uh, you know, you know, yeah. But yeah. this film, I can't. I watched it last night, and I can't remember any. It's I definitely rec- got one scene of that nature in there. I can, I, can, I can recall, and I don't have the same scene that you're talking about. Yeah. It might be, it might not. I can only remember, really, remember one scene of dialogue that, that calls back to memory now, and that is when Samuel L. Jackson is talking about having oral sex with a naked man in the snow. Yeah, exactly. And that, but that's it. There's the, the, there should be more than that, for, especially considering who made the film, how the film's played out, how it's made, the fact that it's so dialogue-heavy and the fact that it's so long... And that's all I can remember in terms of the dialogue, thinking of a, a scene that recalls to memory. And I can't even remember any of the lines from it. Mm, well, you also it got the, um, you've also got the scene where they're in the coach where all the passengers have gotten on and they're all sort of recounting their own background in relation to the North-South mm. War. And that's pretty key to the build-up of the whole thing and the swain of opinion on the characters. Yes. That's definitely yeah. crucial, and I thought it was entertaining. But Brooker, are you where? Where do you I, sit I on this? I definitely sit on the on the side of it was far far too long, and exceptionally boring. It started off really really well with uh, Samuel and Walt Goggins getting in the coach, and mm-hmm. and I'll admit like I love Walt Goggins. Everything he does is amazing. And oh, from the, see, was was it American Ultra he was in? Yeah, he was a nutter in American yeah. Ultra, wasn't he? Had his teeth caved in. Yeah. He uh, he was in the in the entirety of the TV series Justified and The Shield, both times he was great. Uh, I think he's a fantastic actor and does really really well. And I think he does well in this. 
I think everybody does all right. The problem was the the dialogue just didn't keep me hooked. And I love Tarantino's dialogue. I do. And I know it's a weird comparison to make, but it's up there with like early Kevin Smith dialogue. Every, you know, every single line is delivered beautifully and it's absolutely amazing to watch. But but the hateful eight just I genuinely I fell asleep while I was watching it. No, <laughs> I don't fall asleep during films, and I fell asleep during during this film. You shouldn't it, have had a wank before you went in then. I had to do that to wake myself up. But this was the thing. <laughs> <laughs> it just happened to be, you know, Samuel Jackson oral sex in the snow. Why wouldn't I? <laughs> but you know, it just. I don't think it's nowhere near the quality of any of Tarantino's early stuff. And I've said this a couple of times. I really, I didn't like Django Unchained at all. Oh, that's I, interesting. I just didn't like it. Uh, I, I loved the that scene with DiCaprio because I mm-hmm. think that scene taken out of the film is just as good. And just that scene on its own is amazingly performed. But the rest of the film, I didn't enjoy at all. I would probably say Django Unchained is my second favourite Tarantino I think... film. I mean, Jackie Brown is fantastic, and Reservoir Dogs has obviously got like cult status. But Django is just uh, Pulp Fiction is clearly his best. I think. Yeah, I think that's, we... that's fairly undisputed. Yeah. It, it bounces between but... Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction for his top one, and it genuinely it depends mm-hmm. on whichever one I happen to watch most recently. Uh, <laughs> followed very closely by Inglorious Bastards. I loved Inglorious Bastards. I think I think I like World War Two films in general, and there didn't seem to be enough like good ones released in recent years. And it it, it was a it's a Tarantino film, but it's a World War Two film as well. I just you know I enjoyed the whole thing. But Django, um, Django until Hateful Eight, Django I thought was his worst film. I liked I liked Django. And wow. you're talking to a guy that really it took me two watches to enjoy Kill Bill. Kill Bill 1 really grated on my nerves the first time I watched it and oh I had to God, watch it the second that time. The first time I watched it. I thought it was amazing. I, did... I loved the first the the part thing with one. Kill Bill part 1 was I watched it very close to the first time I ever watched Natural Born Killers and the animated stuff in Kill Bill just reminded me too much of the animated stuff in MBK and I went no. No, Natural Born Killers was better. I genuinely, oh, right. I got really kind of stubborn about it. I went, nope, it's bollocks. No, absolute Ooh. rubbish. I'm not. Uh, but I did, I, you know, hat in hand, I went back and I watched it and Kill Bill, both of them, fantastic films. I've not. I still, I haven't brought myself to rewatch the second one. First one, I think, is good. The, the second one was the one that I thought was. was I, I wish they never made the second one. And I know it was supposed to be mm. one film in its original guise, but that would. If it had come out as one film, it would have spoiled the one film. And in isolation, mm-hmm. I think part two is very dull. But the first one's spectacular. But I've not gone back to Django Unchained since. I saw it once and never went back because I just really didn't want to. So I suppose I should give it a second chance. And I have been convinced that I need to give The Hateful Eight a second chance because on second viewing, it's much better. But that means I've got to carve out almost three hours <laughs> and watch a film that I've already said I really don't fucking like. So a film, when a film shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to watch it twice to like no, the film. The the what what was said, and I I kind of I see the point. And the thing was with uh, Pulp Fiction, 
and to to the same kind of extent like the usual suspects the second time you sit and watch it after you know everything that's gone on it, they're much more entertaining films because you're not trying to figure out what the fucking hell is yeah, going on. Yeah, but, but but you like them the first time. Yeah. And you and you but you find more out or see oh, more ab- in the absolutely. film the second time. You shouldn't watch the film the first time and not like it, and then for some reason the second time with nothing changing <laughs> about yourself. So when you get older, or when you you might grow and change the person, and your taste change and things like that. Fine, but like if if you watch the Hateful Eight now and then you watch it three days down the line. You shouldn't not like it the first time and like it the second time. You should like it the first time and then watch it again the second time and discover more stuff about it. No, I completely agree with you. I do. Yeah, but your perspective can change on the second time. So the first time you watch it because it's a mystery and then you're, you're, you you want to see what the you know conclusion is. And then the second watch you'd watch it, seeing how that conclusion was constructed. I, am, I, do, so, I am very dubious about watching it a second time, mainly because... I don't want to have to be the guy that says you have to watch this film twice before you'll like it because mm-hmm. no one needs to sit and watch six hours of Tarantino. Well, life's too short for... If you watch a three-hour film and don't like it, then, you know, how much better is it likely sure. to get but the, the same, you know, on the flip side of that coin, it is Tarantino. And I do think I kind of should maybe give him a chance because it's Tarantino, you know? Mm-hmm. If fucking Lewis Megatron told me that I needed to watch <laughs> one of his films a second time, I'd tell him to fuck right off. Yeah, you've got to watch you've got to watch Taken no. three three times to really get it. So to really problem, appreciate the subtlety. But if I watch Taken yeah. three three times, it's still shorter than the Hateful Eight. <laughs> right there is the problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've got a World Cinema special podcast coming up in a couple okay. of weeks. And that's for the big release. The Playing Assassin. right into my wheelhouse there, aren't you? <laughs> um, I had you in mind I when I was booking yeah. the guests. I thought, yeah. Um, but the, the Assassin, I've, I actually have seen it three times already. And that was within seven days. And that's a short film. That's about 80-something minutes. Um, because I didn't get it the first time. And then I thought, well, maybe it was me. Maybe I wasn't really in the right mood. Maybe, you know, I just um, need to see it again to, to figure out the complexities yeah. of it or whatever bollocks that I was trying to justify to myself for the, for the rewatch. And then the second time through, I was like, okay, I kind of understand it, I think. No, it's gone. I can't remember it. It's gone. It's yeah, fucking the... weird. So watch it again. And then it's just like, it, does, it doesn't really... It doesn't really change it. I think Steve's got a point when he says, you know, if you've changed, then maybe your taste will change and therefore you will get something different out of the film. But the film is always going to be the film. In, in honesty, I'm actually more intrigued now. Now that I've, it's been a couple of years and I've seen The Hateful Eight, I'm now more intrigued to go back and watch Django for a second time than I am to sit mm-hmm. through The Hateful Eight for a second time. I might just wait for the Blu-ray release. And find you know get whatever version Quentin Tarantino yeah. decided was the version we were supposed to watch, and I'll sit and watch it on Blu-ray. And if it's equally as shit, I will come back and tell you. <laughs> but well, let's yeah. I, I mean, am willing to give it a chance see, because I'm... it's Quentin Tarantino, and the guy literally is a legend when it comes to filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But in this instance, I don't think he lived up to that name at all. I he sent me to sleep, and I if you'd have said to me five years ago. You're going to watch a film by Quentin Tarantino that's going to bore you to tears and send you to sleep. I never would have believed you. 
He will shut your butt down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the film Hateful Eight obviously never. It almost, almost didn't get made because of the um, script that was leaked a few oh, years yeah. ago, and he was he furious about it. Yeah, he said, right, that's it. You know, whoever leaked the script, it's your fault. This film is never going to get made now. And that was he loses rag at Tim Roth and Michael Madsen, so like two of four people that had copies of the script. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, I remember that. Mm. Mm. He does seem to be a bit precious, doesn't he, at times? Well, you can kind of understand, because if he's been working on the hate for for like years... to overreact quite a lot, and... (laughs) You you can you can kind of understand it because you know the the script that he's working on and the film that he's planning and you know all that's been mm-hmm. leaked. But at the same time, there's no need to go from you know how old is he fifty forty five something and yeah. just start acting yeah, like a fucking stroppy teenager, Sp- <laughs> spitting his uh yeah. his his dolly out, <laughs> throwing his toys out the pram, mm-hmm. <laughs> losing his shit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, it was also, I think it was the screener for Hateful Eight that was leaked, that they actually traced back to the person who keeps leaking the Oscars. And I don't know if it's like liable to name that person, so I'll just resist doing it anyway. Yeah, I'll, I'll err on the side of caution. But it was the, they put a watermark in the film at a certain point. Or there was something in the, you know, in the code or whatever. I don't know how it worked. But basically, they managed to download through a torrent the, the screener that had been leaked. And they traced it back to who they'd sent that, that screener to. And that guy, apparently, was just, like, giving his screeners to someone he knew. Just, like, as a, you know, they, hey, I know you're into films. I've had this latest one for... The, you you keep it. Don't pass it on to anyone. And the guy was like, "No, of course not. I'll never pass it on. It's mine. I'll you know I'll make sure no one knows I've got it." And then of course that guy was pulling it on the internet. Um, so he's been like blacklisted and arrested. Wow. God bless that man. Yeah. But yeah, it could mean like the end of the screeners being leaked, which I know a lot of people seem to. I mean, I don't torrent anything. You know, I have been known on occasion to look for a film on YouTube as opposed to um, going out of my way to see well, a film see, in the I'll, cinema. I'll be perfectly honest. Um, I, have, I, I try to go to the cinema to see as many new releases as possible because that's how they should be watched. I live in a rural area where not all films are shown um, for whatever reason. I can't afford to trek to the nearest cinema where they are shown. If I need to see them for mm-hmm. the podcast... I sometimes will try and seek them out in other in other methods, other means, and I'm doing it. Let's let's pretend I'm doing it this way because if I review it on here and people listen to my review and like the sound of it, they'll go to the cinema and watch it. That's a very dodgy justification. <laughs> I mean, what I do is I'll I'll do it, and I know it's bad, I and I'm you know, guilty of it. If, but I'll buy a cinema yeah. ticket as well. Uh, or at least, you know, use my unlimited card to register for a film and not actually I, turn I, off. I've done that on a couple um, of occasions for a couple of films that I've not been able to make. And yeah. let's be perfectly honest about this, I know though. It, of course, fucking Hateful Eight is going to be torrented. It's not showing in any cinema in the UK. Cineworld are, yeah, they've refused to screen Childish it. Childish motherfuckers. What on earth happened there? What was the lowdown again? 
Um, I think essentially what it boils down to is the fil- the, um, the Hateful Eight was shot in a particular way that meant that uh, there was only a certain number of cinemas that could show it in its original uh, 70mm um, format. One of those that they decided to, to use was the Odeon in Leicester Square. So Cineworld and I think View may have been another one sort of said, oi, what about us? We've got cinemas. With- Cineworld... Was it? And obviously Picture House, because they're part of Cineworld, and Curzon as well, wasn't it? Yeah. So they said, well, what about us? We can show it in that format. And they said, mm, no, nah, we'll just use the Odeon. Um, so Cineworld said, right, then we're not going to show your film in any of our cinemas. We're not going to show it in Picture House cinemas, because we own those. That was it. They, they just did a point-blank refusal to distribute it. Which is, like, just... Unbelievable. Mm. I would bet it? you any money that this nearly happens way more often than it actually concludes with. I bet this is like a near miss almost all the time because film distributors are so greedy in terms of what uh, percentage of revenues that they ask for from from the box office and that that we, we know because we're savvy enough, we've been around films long enough to know that cinemas don't make much money from the tickets. It's all about confectionery and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I remember when I worked for a certain cinema chain um, back in the day that they nearly didn't get the first Harry Potter for a, a similar type of dispute as that, and which would have been disastrous mm. as it turned out. No one knew quite how big it was going to be, but they knew it was big. And I think they only did the deal to distribute it to that particular chain the day before its release. It was that close, and I wouldn't be surprised this happens very, very often. Mm. Well, yeah, maybe it does, and we just don't don't hear about it um, because it seems like it. I mean, Cineworld were kind of maybe boasting's the wrong word, but they were justifying it in their press release that it was like they were in the right, and that the Hateful Eight should have been allowed to screen at their cinema. But of course, as a customer who pays, like, you know. If you're in London, you pay 20-odd quid a month for your Cineworld Unlimited card. You expect to be able to see films like The Hateful Eight there. Biggest films of the year. You you expect to be able to just pay your money to go and see. So they're really shooting themselves in the foot with this. And then I think it's generating a lot of ill will. And I think part of the reason they're... Part of the way they're trying to win people back on side is they seem to be showing an awful lot of preview screenings at yeah. the moment. That there's just one after the other. Two this week, for example. Room was on Monday and uh, The Revenant on Thursday. You know, there's just uh, the chock a block with them. Next there. week or something. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I, th- I mean, the Unlimited card is it's just a brilliant idea. And it's a shame that other cinemas don't follow a similar. Odeon are still testing their one, aren't they? They are trialing it. They need to crack yeah. on and get it out because, to be honest, if it comes to Milton Keynes, I'd take that over the unlimited card any day. Because mainly mm. because my local Odeon well, is spectacular and Cineworld, even though it's been refit, it's still a bit rubbish. See my Cineworld is a nice little cinema. I like it when I'm there and it's you know, it's it's well run and everything, but the it's just got five screens and they show shit films. I mean last year they didn't show Whiplash or Bird. Welcome like to my you world. Know, a, yeah. I, <laughs> I appreciate I'm like, I know, um, I, you know, first I do world bitch and moan about Cineworld, but... but I mean, I did get to see both of those at the cinema. I'm, I'm quite lucky yeah. that I've got the, the most mainstream of all mainstream cities where I am. So, 
you know, everything comes, well, almost everything comes through here. I might have to start going to the Milton Keynes one. It's a bit further out, but if I'm going to be sort of in Buckingham anyway most of the time, I think that's what I'm going to have to do. Because the one in Didcot is, it just doesn't show stuff. It's really frustrating. You can look at the programme for a weekend, like this this weekend, and what you would hope to see is the Hateful Eight that was being shown. Is the um, good dinosaur on? The good dinosaur is still on, probably two or three times a day. Um, you've got like all these movies for juniors and stuff, which is a good idea. But I mean, when you've got five screens and then like you've got bloody Star Wars showing on two screens all day, it's just like there's no room for anything else. It's a, it's a fucking pain in they the ass. Window because you remember that article I did. Uh, I think it was last year for um, Nightcrawler. Uh, we we only have four oh, yes. screens yeah. on the Isle of Man across yeah. two cinemas, and I was shocked when mm-hmm. Nightcrawler was actually showing. I went to the sort of prime time show in the evening, eight o'clock on on its opening Friday night, and I think I was one of five people there. And you know these mm. businesses that don't have many screens, they can't afford to to take chances on stuff like that because if they get it wrong more than a couple of times, it might put them out of business. So as much as I yeah, I would call for them to be braver in their selections, if they if if people don't show after they they cry fault, then it all just goes horribly wrong for everyone concerned. Mm. That's a good point, I suppose. But I don't know. There's there's no reason that they couldn't say on a Wednesday evening they're going to show the film that they don't get chance to screen any other time. You know, if it was like. Uh, Late last year, January last year, Wednesday evening, they're going to show, in the first week of, of January, they're going to show Birdman. Wednesday evening, the following week, they'll put Whiplash on. You know, there's no there's no reason they can't do that. It's just a, it's just one of those niggly little personal issues I have with with my local cinema. But, um, yeah, but they, they're, so they're not showing The Hateful Eight anywhere in the country, basically. Which is sucks the balls if, you'd, if you've only got a cine world near you. <laughs> Anyway, um, mm-hmm, that indeed. nearly wraps up this week's podcast. Um, recommendations for the week ahead, though. I'm going to start off with Netflix UK, and it looks to me like uh, Wolf of Wall Street has just gone on to there. So if you've got, a, I must admit, it's a fairly long film, but if you've got a few hours to uh, put aside, give that one a watch, especially if you've not seen it already. Owen? Also, UK Netflix has just added Cobain Montage of Heck. Nice. The two-hour, 20-minute documentary, I think it is, about Kurt Cobain um, using footage that's never been seen before, all sort of private um, diary stuff. And basically, the director, Brett Morgan, was given unprecedented access to a garage full of, or garage full of, um, Cobain's writings, his artwork, his recordings um, by Courtney Love. And so, yeah, it's basically all that telling his life story. And it is absolutely enthralling. I just loved it. I loved the music. I'm so glad they've released the soundtrack for it now. Um, yeah, just get get that watched. If you've got any interest in uh, in Nirvana, in Kurt Cobain, or just good music documentaries, it's, it's one of the best that I've well, seen. Well, that's uh, two Netflix-based films. Mm-hmm. If you're listening, Netflix, free memberships for us would very much appreciated. Oh, yeah. we're, be we're, charming. we're pushing people your way. Do us a bit of a favour. Um, Brooker. 
not on Netflix, but seeing as everybody's kind of suggesting really, really long movies, uh, Straight uh-huh. Out of Compton came out on Blu-ray this week. Oh, I love sweet. that film. It was great. Like I'm going to go buy that. I've, I've just ordered the Steelbook. I can't wait. It's going to look great in my collection. But they've actually the Blu-ray is a director's cut, so instead of two hours, 20 minutes, it's two hours, 47 minutes long. I've got no idea what's okay. added. I'm desperately hoping, weirdly, that it's going to have, you know, the Dre beating women up that was really obviously missing from the film. But, what, the D Barnes thing? Yeah. Which was, considering how big that was, it really should have been in the film. So, well, consider, considering they were heavily involved in making it, it probably wasn't going to be on the film. True. So hopefully it'll be here in time for me to talk about next week on the podcast. And Matt. Yeah, I'm going for something on Sky Movies. Uh, Friday night, 9pm on Sky Movies Action and Adventure. It's one of my favourite films from last year, American Sniper. But it is pretty long again, 2 hours 20. So make sure you stock up on your snacks and beer for that one. Yeah, Rubber Baby. (laughs) I love that film, but Rubber Baby. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right, that is it for this week. Owen, what is next week? Next week we have we're reviewing Creed, Room, and The Revenant. Three films. Well, two of those I've seen, and I like two of them. Brooke has already seen all three, and I'm pretty sure I can speak for you, Brooke, and say that you enjoyed them all yeah. as well. Mm, yep. We also hopefully I think we get the nominations for this year's Oscars come out, so we'll be talking about those, and it'll be. Uh, Brooker, you're back with your ex-cast <laughs> partner, basically, at the minute. The way the, the latest I'm, I'm his ex-cast lackey. It's not... <laughs> yeah, Tony Black will be on. So, yeah, that's what people can look forward Excellent. to next week. Well, thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll be back next week where we go through, like we said, three of the big films that are going to be released early this year. Yeah, and remember to sort of stay tuned after the credits this week to... Listen to James's coverage of Bowie Fest from September 2012. Christ, we've been doing this podcast a long time, and not tonight. I mean, in general, who'd have thought? Mm. Who'd have thought? Yep. It, April 2012. That it's it's nearly four years old. Wow, that's gone fast. Yeah. Yeah. What are we doing? What are we doing it's... with our lives? <laughs> The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, created by James Diamond, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, remixed by James Yule of JamesYule.com. You can find us at FailedCritics.com, on Twitter at FailedCritics, and Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash FailedCritics. Thanks for listening. true Bowie fans no I just want to say firstly thank you to um, Ollie and Natasha the co-curators of Bowie Fest who very very kindly allowed me to attend the whole thing did they approach you or did you approach them no I don't think we're at that kind of level (laughs) basically I approached them and said what there's a film festival just all about David Bowie can I come for free please I've got this blog and this podcast and they they were like yeah so they were very welcoming and friendly uh the ICA London the Institute of Contemporary Arts lovely staff really well run event uh, if anyone's ever in London just pop into the ICA you can 
pop in for free and have a look at the exhibitions, but it's a lovely little cinema. I think it must be about 150 seat little screening room cinema. Really, really nice. Lovely venue. Perfect place, really, for Bowie Fest to take place. Obviously, contemporary art. The man was more, always more than just a musician. He, he was an artist. Over the weekend, I saw, I think, nine films. It was a very, very intense weekend, actually. First day was very nice. Just the opening night, got to see Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Miles in Motion Picture, which our keen-eared listeners will know I chose as one of my favourite ever documentaries for Triple Bill a couple of months back. And seeing it on the big screen is now as close as I've got to being there at that gig. I still need to invent my time machine purely to go back in time to that. But um, it was great to see David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars, who as a band were at the peak of their powers at the time. Uh, Mick Ronson, who was uh, you know, just such a genius on guitar and a real part of that sound. His kind of part in pushing glam rock has been underplayed. A lot of people talk about David Bowie, but Mick Ronson's arrangements uh, and his guitar was a really big part of that sound. And learned his sister spoke before the screening because he died uh, in the 90s. His sister spoke before the screening, spoke about him. One thing that fascinated me was at school, he got up to grade seven on his piano. And then before they went and recorded Hunky Dory, he went back to Hull and went back to the same old woman who taught him piano as a kid and finished his studies, basically. A bit like how, um, you're like this, Steve, I, I, I see it how Luke in Return of the Jedi went back to Yoda to complete his studies there. That's the way I saw that. And he learned composition, and the first thing he ever uh, arranged was Life on Mars, and that's one hell of a first arrangement. Um, the second day was the most intense day of cinema I've ever had. I saw four films with about 10, 15 minutes between each one. Three of them were over two hours long, and there were some pretty dark themes there. The first one I saw was a film called Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which David Bowie himself said was his most credible performance. He plays a POW called Major Jack Selliers, and it is a film that focuses on the relationship between the British, primarily, captors, and a Japanese prisoner of war camp, uh, and the officers uh, involved there. Really interesting. They actually, it was, it was a Japanese film filmed by a, a Japanese director, but it was mainly English language with some subtitles. Really interesting. It's the first appearance in a English language film of Takeshi Kitano, who has been in so many fantastic Japanese films since then. And also the, um, it's got Tom Conti in. And Tom Conti is one of those actors that I've always been a little bit, I know who Tom Conti is. I remember him being, um, and Baxendale's dad in friends for example you know like really stu- and in middle class films where people argue about nonsense kind of you know in the 90s but i hadn't really seen him at, properly act before and he's fantastic in mary Chris. uh he, I, obviously david bowie plays this lawrence of arabia style rebellious prisoner and it's a very interesting role however i think the heart of the film is tom conti and uh takeshi katano playing opposite sides of this divide and these weird friendships almost that occur during times of war. But at the same time, Tom Conti gets beaten raw by Kitano, uh, Captain Hara, Hara, I think it is. And at one point Hara says to him, I'd admire you more if you killed yourself. And there's a lot of this exploration of honour and the fact that the Japanese soldiers wouldn't let, they'd rather die than be captured. But the English soldiers were saying, well, no, we want to escape and we want to fight you. You know, death is the coward's way out. So really, really interesting film. 
beautifully shot and got a lovely soundtrack as well. So I went from that film about the despair and meditative nature of a POW camp. Then I watched The Man Who Fell to Earth, which I thought I liked more when I, I had seen it as a youngster. Yeah, it, it's just not it's not as good as I wanted it to be. I think The Man Who Fell to Earth. Um, David Bowie plays Thomas Jerome Newton, who is an alien who comes to Earth to find water, well, to basically get water and then build spacecraft to transfer water back to his home planet, which is dying. But he becomes seduced by human nature and paranoia, starts drinking uh, and eventually gets discovered by the government. So it's, it's two hours, 20 minutes or something. Bowie is essentially playing himself in this. And it's quite interesting. Nick Rogue, who directed it, who also directed Mick Jagger in performance and directed Don't Look Now in the 70s as well. This is from 1976. He cast David Bowie in this after seeing David Bowie in Alan Yentob's Cracked Actor documentary, where David Bowie was a British rock star travelling by limousine across America because he doesn't like to fly, drinking milk uh, constantly and taking loads of cocaine and being this really paranoid, delusional figure. And basically Nick Rogue looked at that and went, yeah, that's my alien. Um, and... Bowie's performance in this is fantastic. Um, all the performances are brilliant, especially Rip Torn. Seeing a young Rip Torn, that threw me completely because I only know Rip Torn as an old man. And seeing him being quite a, a young man full of vitality and things, that was that was an interesting thing. And, and it made me realise hey, he has actually been a very good actor. My main problem was that there was just so many ideas going on at times and the script got a little bit messy, I felt. So not... Not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination, but not the science fiction classic I, I remembered it or as I was hoping it to be. Then after that, straight after that, I watched the film which will live with me long in the memory. It's called Christiana F. It's a West German film from 1981, directed by Uli Adel. Uh, and it's I didn't know going into this screening that it is based on the true life story of a woman called Christiana F., the, the fact that we don't know her full surname, well, we do in real life, but we don't know at the time, becomes clear during the film, and I don't want to ruin that bit. But um, it's shot largely on handheld cameras. It's very Ken Loach in its approach, very cinema verite and using non-professional actors. And that is basically the story of a 14-year-old girl who um, starts going to a nightclub at weekends with her mate. And it's almost this public information film about the uh, about gateway drugs and the the slippery slope of taking that very first drug off someone in some ways you think well yeah it's very telegraphed and it's very public information uh, you know it's basically she takes this drug and then she takes the next drug and then she takes the next drug then before you know it she's selling uh she's in the sex trade and she's giving hand jobs to old men to score heroin for her 14 year old boyfriend who is also giving hand jobs to old men. And at that point, about halfway through the film, you just you just get punched in the stomach by this one. And you realise the main character, Christiana F., is played by a 14-year-old girl. The girl at the centre of this film was a 14-year-old girl when she filmed it. And there are quite graphic drug-taking scenes. There is a withdrawal scene with the two 14-year-olds who decide to get off heroin that makes train spotting look like, I, I don't know, a merchant ivory picture. It is terrific. I really want everyone to see this film, but I also would never want to recommend it to anyone, if you see what I mean. It is brutal, absolutely brutal. The reason it was part of Bowie Fest is 
it uses Bowie's Berlin era music as the soundtrack. And at one point, quite near the beginning of the film, Christiana F goes to a David Bowie. She's obsessed with David Bowie, goes to a David Bowie concert in West Berlin as well. And so you get some live concert footage of David Bowie performing station to station. But like halfway through, I noticed that all the great Bowie music had kind of stopped and it was her descent into hell. Basically, there was less and less David Bowie music. And then she ends up selling all of her David Bowie records just to pay for like one shot. It's horrible. Like I say, it got under my skin. As soon as it finished, I had to go outside and catch my breath. But it's an absolutely incredible piece of filmmaking. It is one of the most powerful films I've ever seen. So I, I will, I want people to see it, but do not see it lightly. That would be my recommendation there. And then luckily I finished off with a 90-minute vampire film. Tony Scott's debut, The Hunger, um, it's very 80s, very schlocky. It opens with um, Bauhaus playing in a New York nightclub kind of thing. It's got Catherine Deneuve as Miriam, an Egyptian immortal uh, who drinks the blood of her victims. She doesn't have fangs, though, and she doesn't have an aversion to sunlight. And the main problem with this film is it's a vampire film without proper vampires, and that annoyed me. I, I like my vampire films to at least follow follow certain classic conventions Bowie plays her lover, a 300-year-old cellist, who all of a sudden starts to age rapidly. And the makeup in this was far better than J. Edgar. I was really impressed by David Bowie as a young, uh, vital 30-year-old. And then very quickly, he became a 50-, 60-year-old, and it looked spot on. Then, as he got to become like 120 or something, it started to look a little bit ropey in terms of the makeup. The main saving point of this film is that Catherine Deneuve and a young Susan Sarandon have a fantastic sex scene. What more can I say? It's worth it for that. But yeah, it it was a very, very Tony Scott film. You could see the flash and the sheen uh, of, of the work that he does, but it wasn't anything that I would say people should go and see. Definitely not. So that was my, that was day two. And then uh, luckily day three, the kind of day that I don't think Jerry would have enjoyed. Two musicals and then a TV documentary. The first one we're talking about sounds like my idea of heaven. <laughs> the first one is Labyrinth. To many people, that's their experience of David Bowie, especially if they've not been introduced to the music very much. But if you mention David Bowie to people, they do think Labyrinth. And I think for people of a certain age, and you know, I'm okay, I'm old. 32 and all that but a lot of the people at Bowie Fest were of the age where they saw Bowie do Starman on top of the pops in 1972-1973 so obviously they're older than me people my age Bowie in Labyrinth was that same moment where you go oh my god this guy is just from another world it's a nice Jim Henson story you know loads of Jim Henson puppets in it scripted by one of the Pythons Terry Jones okay to give you an idea of where my head was at, having watched those four films the day before, um, I took my because I, I took my notebook with me, and after the film, I looked at my notebook and I'd written things like "Dreams Within Dreams," "Sarah's Room Equals the Usual Suspects Notice Board," "Fantasy Driven by Sexual Awakening," "Puberty," uh, and then in quotes, "Your mother is a fucking aardvark." Um, which I'm sure I heard one of the characters say in the background of one of the scenes. And at one point I put 50 shades. I, I've, I've no idea what I meant by that. And also 
the 99%, because at one point Sarah, played by Jennifer Connelly, says it's not fair, and Bowie says, you say that so often, I wonder what your basis for comparison is, basically insinuating that she's grown up in privilege. And I thought, what am I doing here? This is just a great, fun kids film with some brilliant songs. At that point, I thought, right, I need to go for a drink after this. What's great about that? What you see is that watching lots of Bowie films makes your mind melt and makes you go a little bit mental. I think it was those particular films the day before. I think Christiana F, I think, was the one which really sent me over the edge. But, um, yeah, I, I felt like Bowie in the 70s, co-caddled and paranoid without any kind of need for it. Um, I, was, I was living solely on Pilsner Urkel and um, uh, there was a McDonald's around the corner. So I popped out to get a double cheeseburger in between films because I only had five minutes or so. So that that's why I was I was more like Elvis rather than uh, Bowie in the 70s. But the great thing about Bowie in Labyrinth and anyway, it was fantastic to see it on the big screen. And it did remind me what a great family film it is. Bowie is having fun with it and he doesn't at any point give the sense that he feels it's beneath him, which I think is really important with big stars. I'm not saying, you know, big actors, but big stars. I'm not saying that Bowie's a massive actor. They've got to give the sense of you got the impression he was still giving his all. He was treating it seriously. And the only other comparison I can think of was when Rick Mayle, did George's Marvelous Medicine for BBC's Jack and Ori. And there is this sense of an adult who is just engaging with a completely different audience and the different challenges and rewards that brings. So Bowie in Labyrinth is incredible. I will stand by that film and by that performance till the day I die. And then I watched Absolute Beginners. And I just want to say quickly, it's nowhere near as bad as its reputation. It, it, it actually, I think it's an underrated film now. It's basically a musical uh, based on the 1959 Colin, uh, novel by Colin McInnes about the Notting Hill race riots in 1958. It's quite fluffy at times. There's some duff lines and some cod psychology, but there's some good songs. Ray Davis has a lovely little cameo. It was a fun way to spend 90 minutes, so I was happy with that. And then the whole thing ended with a showing, a very, very rare showing of uh, Alan Yentop's Cracked Actor documentary, which the Turner Prize winning uh, artist, Jeremy Della, did a conversation with Alan Yentop afterwards. He's a massive fan of it. It's available in loads of bits on YouTube. It is one of the great rock documentaries of all time. Just a fascinating portrayal of a man completely in control of what he's saying, even though he sounds completely mad. Jeremy Della described it as Bowie's best on-screen performance. And after this weekend, I cannot argue with that at all. Bowie Fest was a fantastic experience. Again, thanks to everyone involved in that. Even as a massive Bowie fan, I learned so much from the weekend. And it, it did make me realise, yeah, I think David Bowie can stand there and be proud of his work on screen as well as his work on record. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.